Welcome to the next episode of the Austin Bar Association's Council of Firsts. I'm your host, Amanda Ariaga, First Latina Bar President. This podcast is made possible by the Texas Bar Foundation. In today's episode, we talk to Justice Raul Gonzalez, first Hispanic Justice of the Supreme Court of Texas, and first Hispanic person to ever hold a statewide office in Texas. Justice Gonzalez was born and raised in Westlaco, Texas, and is a graduate of the University of Texas, University of Houston Law Center, and received an LLM from the University of Virginia. Justice Gonzalez served as a member of the judiciary for over 20 years as a district judge in Brownsville, court of appeals judge in Corpus, and then with the Texas Supreme Court from October 1984 to December 1998. Justice Gonzalez was named as Outstanding Alumnus of the University of Houston Law Center, received the Rosewood Gavel Award for Outstanding Jurist at St. Mary's Law School, the Lifetime Achievement Award from the St. Thomas More Society, is a former regent of the University of Houston, and has the distinction of serving as a namesake of the Justice Raul A. Gonzalez Elementary School in Westlaco, Texas. I'm honored to have with me today, Justice Gonzalez. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Amanda. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I know folks have known a lot about you for many years, and in reading all of your biography, you talked about how you always wanted to be someone that went to college. But how did you know that you also wanted to be a lawyer? Well, it it was a process of elimination. You know, I um, in high school, I was very active uh, uh, trying to discern, you know, what it is, it is that I want to do with my life uh, as a career. Um, I was active in the one act play. I was active in uh, uh, very active in speech and speech contests, extemporaneous speaking. Uh, I was um, in a debate uh, group, um, and those type of those type of uh, activities um, sort of pushed me into into law. I was at that point in my life too. I was a social justice warrior. I saw a lot of injustice. Um, in our school, um, the the valley is very unique. Uh, every town has its own history. And uh, Westlaco, Texas, when I was growing up, is not at all like your experience in McAllen. Mm-hmm. We had the town was divided by tracks, railroad tracks. On one side of tracks was the Hispanics, and the bars and the pool halls, and the tattoo parlor uh, shops. The other side was Anglo. Uh, We were prohibited from speaking Spanish in in high school, in school. Um, And it it appeared that there was some uh, prejudice against Hispanics. So, I became uh, one of the group that said, guys, we outnumber the Anglos um, because the Anglos were getting all the positions, you know, for the yearbook, you know, the most popular, the most talented, the most this, the most that, the queen of this and king of that. And the Hispanics were, by and large, were not getting those positions. So... I and a group of others organized. And the next go around, 
we practiced we were prejudiced in reverse. So we won all, we we won all the uh, all the quote status positions, but simply because of our own prejudice. You don't find print now. Fifty years later, sixty years later, we come to find out that prejudice can be fought by love, acceptance, and respect, uh, not by more prejudice. Prejudice only perpetuates itself when you practice what you abhor. So uh, I've learned a few things since then. I know that. Fight prejudice with love. And so you became a lawyer, you were fighting the prejudice, and then you decided at some point you wanted to oversee the law instead of being a lawyer. So how did you decide to be a judge? Well, um, again, it, it was... Uh, I've been a lawyer for many, many years. I, I've had a wonderful over 50-year career as law. You know, my first job as a lawyer was with a personal injury law firm. Um, and I knew nothing about the, the economics of the law practice. They, they, I thought that they, they offered me a, a very um, good deal. I say, look, you, you'll get 50% of every personal injury case that you bring in, plus you have uh, $560 uh, dollars a month draw. Uh, well, that didn't last very long because I didn't know that personal injury cases, you get paid, paid at the tail end, and it may take over a year or two before you get any money. You can't pay your rent or your car payment or your food when your wife is making more money as a secretary or as an executive assistant than me as a lawyer. So I uh, had the opportunity to go uh, from the law firm to go work as an assistant city attorney for the city of Houston for a salary, a double or triple my salary. Um, and if you ever worked in, have worked in municipal court, you know there you'll find that there's a there's a pecking order even among the municipal court prosecutors. Uh, I started out prosecuting vagrants, uh, those individuals who were charged with soliciting money for sex prostitutes, um, and then you graduate. You graduate ultimately to trying negligent collision cases, um, which was invaluable because you learn how to prepare your case and how to put on evidence uh, and how to make arguments. So I did that for a couple of years, and that was an invaluable experience. Not only did I find that rewarding, uh, and then being involved in the Bar Association, you make connections and you network. I, uh, a member of the Harris County Bar, um, was the U.S. Attorney. And the U.S. Attorney, uh, Anthony J.P. Farris from El Paso, 
whose father was Anglo and his mother was uh, Mexican-American. And he had a heart for the Mexican-American bar uh, to promote and to invite, to encourage, to educate uh, lawyers of Mexican-American descent. Uh, he, through his influence as a U.S. attorney for the Southern District of Texas, I became an assistant United States attorney. And that was a big step up in my legal career. Started on the civil side, doing condemnation cases. Uh, after did that for about six months or so, there, there had been a United States attorney in Brownsville, Texas, that he was dissatisfied with. He wanted to make a change. So he offered me the position, and I said, I'm having a time of my life here. You know, I, I, uh, let me, let me talk to my wife about it. Well, I had been out of the valley, you know, since I, since undergraduate here at UT, uh, since law school. My parents were living alive on both sides of the family. We started growing, we started having children, and I thought that it'd be great if the kids would get to know their grandparents. So after some consideration, I accepted the position of being an assistant United States attorney in Brownsville, Texas, where my job was to be the only prosecutor in federal court, Judge Rinaldo Garza's court. Um, so I, be, I became um, very active in, in my work, climbed the ladder of success, you know, trying cases, you know, many cases involving tons of marijuana, an occasional crime in the high seas, the shrimpers would get involved and kill somebody. <laughs> after a drunken binge or something, and try those cases and try a lot of immigration cases, a lot of drug cases. So I, I was thriving in my career. I became involved with the Bar Association, and I tried to be involved in different committees and do, and do for young lawyers what had been done for me, give them a hand up. Um, that was very rewarding. Um, after four years of that, um, I decided to go into private practice. And I got an offer for making a lot more money than I was making as a federal prosecutor by being a criminal defense lawyer. Uh, and the, I was surprised that the criminal defense uh, those people that are accused of major crimes pay very well. Those criminal defendants uh, have resources. They find the money. Uh, and I was doing great. Uh, after doing that for a while, I decided to go be in private practice on my own. The criminal defendants, you know, they were paying me money 
that I had to share with the firm. I wanted that to be for me and not share it. So I did that for a while and then developed into a walk-in practice, civil and criminal. But I became very disillusioned in the practice of law. When you're a greenhorn, you know very little about, like I said, the economics of the law practice. And everybody has a dream of having the big case where you're going to hit the lottery and make lots of money. Well, waiting and waiting and waiting, that didn't come. Um, the reason it didn't come is because the law practice in that era, uh, we had a lot of solicitation, illegal solicitation or unethical solicitation of those cases by having uh, a network of runners that were make the rounds in the hospital, make the rounds in the so-called, for lack of a better term, ambulance ch chasers. Some disillusion. Uh, and about that time, I had this a, a profound religious uh, transformation. The spiritual side of my life had been dormant for a long time. I was married to my career. I thought that being a good husband would be the best, my job as being a best husband was to be the best provider I could for my wife and my children. Um, I was very happy. I was very successful. Uh, success is measured, you know, to me, I was successful. I had a, a beautiful wife. I had children. We had money in the bank. I had a condo of South Padre Island. I had luxury car and I had money in the bank. Um, my spouse was unhappy that I was spending all my time, or most of my time, uh, with my career, my job, my bar associations, my, uh, my civic involvement. I was on the school board of a school district uh, in the Valley uh, for a time. I was um, in the Rotary Club. Uh, I was uh, in different bar committees. Uh, and she would complain that she was disillusioned because we didn't talk as much as we did in the early years. My uh, and, and I was not very, I was not very uh, loving in my responses. Um, my response was, "Babe, look around. Look at your mom and dad. Look at my aunts and uncles." You get married, you get settled, and that's just the way it is. What you're asking of me is unrealistic. It's only in the movies where you have romantic love after you get married after a while and you get busy with career and children. So that, that was the, why did I become, why did I seek a judicial position? When I attended a worldwide marriage encounter weekend, which is to teach husbands and wives, spouses, tools, how, how they can prioritize their marriage, 
it had it had a uh, unintended um, consequence that the spiritual side of, of my three-legged stool that had been dormant for years uh, was reawakened and I got involved before then I was a uh, before then I was a um, church goer uh, because of culture and tradition not because of any faith it, it was expected of me to go to church but I was a back bencher sat on the back zero involvement in the, in the life of a of the church or the parish. Um, but as a result of that emerging kind of weekend and the opening of my eyes, that God wanted more for me, that he had a plan for me. And that was just to be a, a better husband, a better father, a better, a better citizen with more balance. So there was a vacancy for a district judge uh, in Brownsville. Um, and I started to pray for discernment. What is it that, that I want to do? I'm disillusioned with the practice of law. Uh, perhaps uh, I ought to give this a try. Um, well, these type of decisions, you know, require a lot of pre-work before you file. You've got to get a committee. You've got to get talk to friends. How are you going to finance it, your campaign? Are we going to have the worker bees that will knock on doors and ask people to vote for you? We got a committee together, and uh, I became a district district judge, uh, and I loved it. I was a general jurisdiction judge. You had criminal, civil, family. Uh, all types of disputes. The variety just in, in, intrigued me. And particularly the juvenile matters, juvenile cases and adoptions. That was very, very rewarding to be dealing with parents who seek to adopt a child or a parent who has a wayward son or daughter that had been charged with a crime. Uh, I just loved that work. As I was growing in my faith, I became to see that I could be an agent to, to bring families together. At least give it a try. Make an effort. Because sometimes parents act with tough love, and they're the ones that call the police about my son or daughter. Um, I remember one case specifically where I don't know what possessed me to do this, but I did. I called a recess during a hearing. And I talked to, we had an in-bench conference with the lawyers. I asked the lawyers permission for me to talk to the parents in chambers. Uh, along with their wayward child. Uh, and they agreed. And I had no idea what I was going to say or what I was going to do. 
So I had a flare prayer. I said, Lord, <laughs> what do I do? Um, and I told the parents about my journey as a father and how, and the mistakes that I had made uh, rearing our kids and uh, that I had, I knew that I had made some mistakes because I was treating them like a defendant in court rather than a child of my own flesh and blood. You know, I was a very tough taskmaster. You know, in my immaturity as a judge, I was a law and order judge. If you don't do the, if you do the crime, don't do the, if you can't do the time, don't do the crime was my attitude uh, in that era. Little did I know that that's, that was not very um, efficacious or proper. Everybody has a story. Everybody has a reason for doing the wrong thing. Some of it is lack of formation or lack of, lack of respect or just a mistake that they made where they go, their life goes off the track. So I asked the parents, looking at your life with this child, is there any, can you think of anything that perhaps you could have done different in shaping the morals, the values of this child? Um, and the mother pops up and says, yes. And she started to cry. And the child was, the body language of the child was hands crossed, you know, a little bit surprised, but just baffled by what was happening. Um, I got teary-eyed when I shared my story about the mistakes I had made as a father with our children. That prompted something in the mother and she was ready and willing to ask for forgiveness of her sibling, of her child. The best the father could do was to reach out and touch the child. I have no idea. Then we proceeded with a hearing. Um, I could have sent the child um, to JV, juvenile home, um, but I didn't. And I have no idea whether that particular episode had any lasting effects or not. Um, I, uh, but I give it a try. Only God knows if that worked or not. But that tells you the tremendous satisfaction and fulfillment that I was feeling as I was growing. I saw myself as perhaps an agent of peace and reconciliation and building harmony with the family. And you go from there to have a murder case. <laughs> and the, so the variety. And then you have every Friday, you have, quote, Father's Day, failure to pay child support. And I was very tough. I, I wanted to, the, the people that were not ordering, were not, obeying my order to pay child support 
Uh, it was very tough. Uh, I would find him in contempt and put him in jail. And he says, for how long? Well, only time will tell. It was interesting to me how they find money. You put him in jail on Friday night. By my Monday, they are, they've either worked out a payment plan or they come up with a, 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 a bunch of money to make, to make it right. So I was flabbergasted as I was learning about human dynamics, learning how to be a judge. Uh, I was getting tremendous job satisfaction. So I, I thought I was going to do that for the rest of my life. Was it a difficult decision when you were approached to be part of the Court of Appeals and leave this judgeship that you clearly loved? Um, I thought they were kidding. Friends of mine, friends of mine said, uh, Governor Bill Clements, a Republican, is looking to put three people in the Court of Appeals. They're expanding the court, and they want to see whether or not you would be open. No, nobody says, you know, you, you're in if you want it. Say, are you open to the prospect of being considered to be appointed? And uh, that meant that we would have to move from Brownsville to Corpus Christi, that we would have to uproot the kids to a different school district, that we would have to leave the house that we just had to, we had just remodeled. <laughs> so um, it was a difficult decision. But I said, you know, um, I may enjoy that job as well. So I became open to the prospect of being appointed uh, as the first Hispanic on the Corpus Christi Court of Appeals. Mm -hmm. And I got the nod, and I was confirmed by the Senate. And I didn't like it in the beginning because you are, I was, I'm a people person, and I was used to dealing with lawyers and juries and litigants. Uh, but in the Court of Appeal, you're isolated. You know, you, you just consider the cases on their briefs and an oral argument. And not, not everybody gets an oral argument and not in all cases. So it took a while for me to get the rhythm and the practice of, of being an appellate court judge, which is completely different, a completely different dynamic. Uh, first of all, you, you're not a solo agent. You know, you have to collaborate and participate with the panel and get at least one more vote. <laughs> you can't have it your way. So you learn the art of compromise. Uh, and you, if you take this out, you know, I'm with you because I don't agree with this, this part of the opinion. If you put this in uh, or in different wording, uh, I will, you know, I'll make the second vote or the third vote. So I did that for three years and I loved it. The only thing that I didn't like was you have to run after the appointment at the next election. So rather than running for election as a district judge in two county area, Cameron and Willisie County, now I had 22 counties to, to do a campaign. So you start the process over of trying to garner support from the Bar Association, from lawyers you know, et cetera. 
And I thought I was going to retire as an appellate court judge. Instead of running for 22 counties, you ultimately get to have to be part of the Supreme Court of Texas, where you're going to have to run 254 counties. So how did that happen, and were you surprised when that happened as well? Um, there are as many journeys to the appellate bench and to the Supreme Court or Court of Appeals or district bench as there are people. There is no one size fits all. There's no one journey um, that, that but my journey um, had a faith component uh, to it. Um, uh, I, uh, I said, Lord, I don't know what you want. What are you asking me? I don't like the process. I do not like being in a position where you have to ask for money, big sums of money from potential litigants that you are going to have to rule on their, on, on their case. And you, there's no way to remove the appearance of impropriety. If you have a litigant, um, you have a choice to disqualify yourself and not rule on their case or to sit on the case. Uh, and the losing party, if you don't disqualify yourself, because you can't disqualify yourself in every case. It takes over a million dollars to mount a Supreme Court race. Uh, and that money comes from special interests. And there's no way to remove the appearance of impropriety. And I knew that in advance, so I did not want to be open. So my, my prayer and my quiet time, I said, uh, Lord, I don't know where this is a call from a politician or you're calling me to service in a different arena. So I became open after I made the mistake. Well, not a mistake. My, I told my wife, honey, I, I don't like it. I, I, I'm going to say no. I did not. I did not. Um, and then she talked to my mother. My mother is very involved in her faith and the charismatic renewal and prayer groups and everything else. They were praying for me to make, to be open for the position. Nobody offered me the position. They said, are you open to the prospect of being considered this time by Governor Mark White, a Democrat? Growing up in the valley, there's no growing up before your time, Amanda. There was one party, the Democratic Party. Uh, everybody was a Democrat. Um, so I, uh, there is there's no way to remove politics out of this equation. I come to find out, politics is in every endeavor that we get into, whether it's a school board, a city council, district judge, court of appeals judge, Supreme Court judge, there's no way to remove the, the, the politics that are involved. Um, 
I thought I was safe because they were once the way the political system works, once they float in a float, the governor's office floats uh, a trial balloon. They were looking for qualified Hispanics to put on Supreme Court. There's no dearth of candidates. They come out of the woodworks. They appoint me. Um, well, I became one of many who said, I am open to the prospect. And that was a very interesting dynamics. Governor Mark White, um, who I did not know. I had never met. And before then, I didn't know Governor Bill Clements. We had never met. We had never had a discussion. But the beauty of the system, the way it is, other people have an ear to the governor. And they're the ones that make recommendations. Um, and I was appointed to the Texas Supreme Court because I was in the right place at the right time with the criteria they were looking at. Um, everything lined up for me. Um, so that's how I became a Texas Supreme Court judge. And I um, served 14 years on the court. I left on my own terms. Uh, went to work with a law firm after that, doing a, in their appellate section. Loved it. And then my wife and I decided after my time with a law firm, we haven't been many places out of Texas. Number one, because we were busy working. And number two, because we couldn't afford it. But now we can afford it. So we became travelers, world travelers. We went to China. We went to Tibet. We went to England. We went to France. We went to Ireland. We went to Scotland. Um, we went to the Holy Land. So we we went on cruises. We went through the Panama through the Panama Canal. We went to Machu Picchu, uh, you know, in, in Peru. So we we were on top of the world. And I told our kids, we're spending your inheritance. <laughs> And we're having a great time. That's good. They should work for it. <laughs> that was my attitude. So you mentioned that Governor White was looking for qualified Hispanics. Yeah. Do you think that that was really intentional? They were looking to have the first Hispanic Supreme Court justice? Yes. Yes. But the Hispanic community was divided. Up to that point... I had not been involved in the democratic politics. I didn't been, I got so much out of the marriage encounter and the church on the spiritual side, I was spending most of my time either in bar association, but not a partisan political politics. Uh, and there were others qualified individuals who said they had paid their part, they had paid their dues mm -hmm. to the democratic party, this honor they were more deserving than I was. And, uh, and they probably had a very good argument if that was a criteria. Uh, but Governor, I am told that Governor Mark White uh, told a significant group of Mexican-American group that had been involved in democratic politics that his choice was going to be me. 
on the condition that they did not oppose me at the first election. And he said, if you don't make that commitment, I can, I can make history. I can appoint a black. There's never been a black, an African-American on the court. I can appoint a woman. The only woman that had been on the court up to that point was a case many years earlier where the, all the judges of the court were members of the Woodman of the World, and they had a Woodman of the World case. So the governor, they all recused themselves, and the governor appointed uh, a panel of three to rule in that case. So she said, I'm told that the governor told him I can, I can make a historic appointment by appointing a woman or an African-American if you decide, if you're not going to, if you're going to oppose Justice Gonzalez at the first election. And that's the way, that, that's the way it was. Well, it's interesting because I am told that that's still how party politics work. Um, and that if you're not in with the party, if you haven't done enough to help the political party, then you're not as deserving. So you're interesting because somehow in your background, you are the person that they were looking for. You seem nonpartisan because you were appointed by a Republican and a Democratic governor. I'm not sure that that is something that would happen today, that we would have people appointed from different parties, because if you're not even, if you don't even do enough for your own party, it would be hard to think that the other party would want you. Do you think that that should be happening more, that we should be more bipartisan? Well, uh, like I said earlier, there's no way to remove politics completely out of any process. Um, but yes, I, um, I hope that our society will not be as polarized as it is now, because I agree with you, that would not happen in today's uh, environment. And I'm just happy that it, that I lived through the process and enjoyed it. Well, and then while you're on the Supreme Court, you were known for being quite a dissenter. And today, when we hear about dissenting, we think of fighting. There's fighting in all of the parties and all of the levels of government everywhere that we look. So how were you able to dissent but still be collegial with all of your colleagues? Well, it, it, it depends on the individuals. You know, I had the benefit of, when I came to the court, of serving with some outstanding, ethical, uh, competent uh, jurists. Um, but we had a mix of uh, justices who had been in the legislature and either the House or the Senate, and they were their worldview was different than mine. I had never been in that body. Uh, I didn't come up through the legislature or the Senate uh, or through the party, party ranks. So my plea was in some areas of the law, the only area of the law that we can develop on the Texas Supreme Court is development of the common law. But in other areas of the law, my plea to, to my colleagues, with all due respect, that's not our role. These public policy issues that you failed to pass in the legislature, you're now trying to do it through fiat, through the court, and that's not our role. So I dissented. Um, they, um, whether they 
uh, in the beginning, they say, who in the world is this? Is this upstart coming in and telling us to stay in our lane? But we, we were collegial. Uh, we, uh, we got along. There was no rancor uh, from my part. And hopefully there was no rancor in their part e uh, either. They just, I was an odd duck. And uh, I stayed an odd duck. But that changed as the, as the Supreme Court, uh, as the Supreme Court uh, evolved to what it is now, where every single member of the Texas Supreme Court in 2023 is a Republican. When I came to the court in 1984, every single member of the court were Democrats. And some were, their history had been as policymakers in the legislature. Uh, I took positions uh, in dissenting opinions. And I'm so pleased that later on, the positions that I advocated became majority opinions as the personnel in the court changed. As long as you stay on the course, and I'm sure that you know this because of your faith, you're not who has to change when you're right. Sometimes it's the makeup that has to change. Well, you know, that's beyond my pay grade, and I, I didn't see it that way. But I agree with you that if the personnel changes, you know, we all are the products of our history and our experiences. That doesn't make us bad people. That's just who we are. Mm -hmm. Some of us are open to change. I evolved a lot during my 20 years as a judge. I, uh, I, I, uh, I wish if I had to do it over again, I'd be a better judge than I was as a greenhorn judge, as a district judge in criminal cases. The sentences that I meted out um, were harsh, and they would not be as harsh as they are back then, as, as I was back then simply because I'm a different person. Mm -hmm. I am more, uh, I am more, uh, I'm wiser, more measured. It's just like, remember when you were a freshman in high school, you thought you knew everything? Well, I did. And that's the way when you are a baby judge, you think you know everything. But as time goes on, if you're open to change, we find out how little we know. And not everything is black and white. But I, thought, I saw things in black and white as a baby judge. But as a more seasoned, experienced judge, I see the complexities and the nuances. They're not black and white at all. The close calls, very, you know, there, there's a... Under our system, you know, uh, somebody wins, somebody loses. And it takes five votes in the Supreme Court to make one party prevail versus the others. Um, so it is a process, and I think by and large, we get it right. I, in one, in one speech that I was given to the bar, I uh, perhaps in advice, I said, you know what? The Supreme, Texas Supreme Court is a court of last error. <laughs> I see that facetious, said that facetiously, but uh, there's some truth to that, you know. Um, they don't make errors, uh, intentional errors, or we didn't make intentional errors, but it can be viewed as 
the court of last era because you usually there is unless you're dealing with a federal question our our opinion is law for the state of texas and there there is no further appellate review unless you're dealing with a federal question because you've evolved in your mindset is that why you enjoy being an arbitrator today i I've been an arbitrator and I've been a um, a mediator. Um, I don't do I no longer do mediations. Um, I'm I am more more at ease at listening to the parties, trying to be a t attentive listener, and make a ruling based on the law as I understand it, and make it make an award. So I enjoy uh, being an arbitrator more so than a mediator. Mediators have no power. Mm -hmm. Mediators are cheerleaders, and, and cheerleaders for and in the sense that they are trying to get the other side uh, to see the other side and work toward uh, some a compromise that they can both both sides can live with, and that's very difficult. Mm -hmm. So I want to go back to you being the first Hispanic on the Supreme Court and the first Hispanic person to ever hold a statewide office in Texas. When we look today, there still aren't a lot of minorities represented in those positions. Is that something that we should try to change? And if so, how could we do that? Well, for starters, um, I think we need to do away with partisan election for judges. Uh, for starters, I don't think that the party label should uh, be the determining factor whether you're going to vote for for the person or not. And it's very difficult to campaign uh, and differenti differentiate yourself from the other candidates who are also seeking the position. Um, by and large, the people that, that um, the voters that vote up to this point have very little information to make a a educated view of the person they're going to vote for because the canvas of ethics uh, as they should prohibit us from asking people to vote for me as a judge and I will rule in your favor regardless of what the law is mm -hmm. you know that's not the way the system works um, and as a result of having partisan election for judges we've had some excellent Democrats that have been voted, on, voted out of office because of the swing that one party prevails. And we've had some re excellent Republican judges that have also been swept out. So I, um, we've, lost, we've lost a lot and we're not perhaps getting the best that we deserve and can get because we do have partisan election for judges. Um, and that's a, a modest first step. And I think that when the legislature went, got away and eliminated the straight ticket voting, I think it was the attempt to try to stop that so that you would have to know who are you actually voting for. But I don't know that anybody really does that. No, I agree with you. I, I agree with you. It was a good first step. Mm -hmm. um, but it didn't go, got, it didn't go far enough. Mm -hmm. I was flabbergasted. The Democrats control the governorship, 
the House and the Senate, and they didn't move to reform the system and getting away from partisan election for judges, then it came full circle. Now the Republicans were in power, and the Republicans had the governorship, the House, and the Senate. And change was not an option. Well, it was an option, but an option they didn't exercise because they said, wait a minute, we just got here. We've got to get some of our people in. So selfish, self-interest carried the day both for the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, and it's very, very difficult. In recognizing the fact that the so-called uh, a Missouri plan where you get uh, a committee to uh, vet the candidates for minimum standards of, of competency and ethics, uh, and they recommend three candidates to the governor, and the governor can pick one of the three. Um, it's in my, in my way of thinking, it's an improvement but there is no way to remove politics all the all of it i i serve as a as a vice chairman of the federal judicial evaluation committee um and we try very very hard to vet the candidates based on competence and integrity and ethics and let others decide. And we one of one of the criteria for our committee, put politics aside. That's not a consideration, whether the person's a Democrat or Republican. But by and large, when you have a Democratic governor, excuse me, Democratic president, Democratic Senate, they're gonna favor people they're familiar with in terms of uh, one once all things being equal. And that's understandable. And I was surprised that sometimes there's a little horse trading. You know, somebody from one state can say, I want this person to be appointed to the federal judiciary. Another party from another state say, well, I'm not, I'm not too keen on that candidate, but if you, if you vote for my candidate that I want in a different state for federal judiciary, and, you know, they trade votes. It happens occasionally. Um, but life, we're all flawed. We're all sinners. <laughs> so we do the best we can with what we have. In your perfect world, would judges be appointed or would they just not have a party affiliation and there's still a vote of all the people? Well, um, at a minimum, they would not have any party affiliation. Uh, they're just a candidate. But I do not want to rob the voters of the opportunity to vote them out. Mm -hmm. So you can be appointed, confirmed by the Senate. At the next election, let the voters, and by and large, they're going to win. But if a person is guilty of unethical practice or shady practice or malfeasance, and there's a lot of a cloud that the person is not acting as a, a justice uh, or a judge in the proper manner, you know, uh, let the voters have a crack at it, voting them out. Well, and it's interesting, just watching from sort of the perspective of the Bar Association, um, I think sometimes candidates for judicial offices forget that everybody votes. There's a lot of 
you know, come to the Bar Association, come to all of the sister organizations and get endorsements. And that's not the majority of who's voting. They're regular people out in the community that need to be catered to and that need to understand why you would be the best judge. Well, it is, but it's very difficult to get mm-hmm. to get any, any interests um, because we all sound the same. Um, these are my credentials. This is my body of my work that I've done. And if you believe that I'm worthy of your vote, vote for me. If not, vote for the other, vote for the other side, for the, the other candidate that is also seeking the position. You know, it's a, there is no perfect system. There's no perfect system, and that, in my view, that has been designed. So we do the best we can with what we got. Well, since we got some free time, you should create one and then we'll sell it. So you come back, come up with it, and then we'll bring you back and you can tell us how could we do this in the most preferred way. I'm not that wise. <laughs> we got time. I'll get you a committee. We got time. What organizations have meant the most to you professionally or personally? Uh, the Boy Scouts have been an integral part of my life. Um, I didn't make it to, to Eagle Scout, but I was in the process. But to see uh, men willing to give of their time to mold, shape um, an individual, to do the do the right thing, to be honorable, and their public service—you know—all this is pro bono work. They just have an interest in making this a better world, a better society, a better city. I am. I am very thankful for the scout masters that I've had. Uh, I am very thankful for my relationships in the bar association. You know, I was telling uh, the videographer that I saw Terry Tottenham's name and a person that I respect immensely um, because of his work and his ethics and, and his skills. And there are countless people like that. And I, I like the bar. That the bar association, the the bar journal is featuring young Hispanics Mm -hmm. coming up through the ranks that are exemplary, doing good work in their firms and good work in the bar. And it's so gratifying to see. And I hope that someday they too can can have a position that they aspire to uh, in the judiciary or otherwise. Well, that leads us to our last question. What advice would you give to lawyers who want to follow in your footsteps? Well, do the right thing. Prepare yourself. Be respectful. Uh, We're all flawed, but to the extent that you can, be open to becoming a better listener, to being less judgmental, and to be, be the person that you want to be and lead by example. Well, thank you so much for being here today. I hope that people take away that they need to be open to the opportunities. You don't need to go and shake down the opportunities. Just be open to something to happen for you, just like you did. Thank you. Thank you so much. We'll see you all next time.